This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here, and I'm joined. Uh, I've waited a long time to do this because uh, he's my main man. He's my mentor in the TV world and in a, in a lot of different worlds that will remain unsaid for this uh, particular time uh, in history. The one, the only, Mr. Cliff Drysdale. People have been asking me quite a bit, Cliff. I know you're a big guy on social media like me. When are you going to have Cliffy on? So here we go. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, call myself a, a, a genius or a, a mountain of a person on social media, to be honest, as you well know. Because half of the things we say to each other over the years have been with tongue in cheek, and that is one of them. And they don't—they don't necessarily translate to the uh, Twitter world, is what you're saying? Yeah, Twitter and Facebook and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so, However, so, so tell me, tell me how you're holding up now. We were together in in the U.S. Open bubble, so we've had about uh, a little over a week now to sort of decompress from that. What was your just overall feeling about how that went this year at the U.S. Open? I thought it was a spectacular success from, from the standpoint of, uh, of just bringing tennis back live, you know, with a major event. Uh, I, I thought that uh, the production team at ESPN were phenomenal in being able to put everything together and actually get that picture on television sets across not only the country but the world. I thought the USTA also did a staggeringly well, good job on, um, on the social distancing and the masks and everything, and everybody felt safe. And to be honest, it was, it was a pleasant experience um, just walking around that complex of tennis courts and restaurants and stuff and not being jostled everywhere. That's not what you want, but from us, a purely selfish standpoint, I thought, look, the final... The final uh, product that was on the air, I think, was good. Uh, not great because we missed the crowds, but under the circumstances, as good as could possibly have been presented. I found, I found it very strange when we would, particularly when we would finish a match, Cliff, as you did a few of these two at night, when you know, normally you walk out and there's all sorts of fans and we're, we're close in our ESPN booth to the suite, so you'd have the high rollers there, and then you'd walk down, you'd go outside and you'd see all the fans and you know, people talk to you about the match and just about the tournament overall. So that, that to me was the weirdest part of the whole thing, that, that late night you know, walking to the car, walking to the bus to go back to the hotel and so on. It was like totally desolate. Well, how weird was that? Well, that was, to me, not as weird as, as watching a match played until one o'clock in the morning, knowing that if there had been people there, they would have been standing and clapping and going absolutely Jimmy Connors crazy. And then, and then the match, suddenly it's over in the fifth set tie break. And there's nothing no sound, no clapping, no people standing and cheering what was a magnificent match. That, to me, was, was really weird. Yeah, it was weird. Well, listen, uh, as I think you know, um, what I've been doing with my podcast, because obviously you and I could go on about a multitude of topics for a multitude of time. But yes. uh, one, one of the things that I, I've been getting into with my guests who are varied, you know, people with varied backgrounds. I had Martina Navratilova on just recently. Obviously, I've had Chrissy on and I've had a lot of non quote unquote tennis people on 
to discuss their their love and their interest in tennis. So I want to get into a couple things with you, but I do want to hear a little bit for our, our fans out there to hear a little bit about how Cliff Drysdale got started way back in the day in tennis. How did you pick up tennis and why did you get into it at a young age? Very simple, and I think it's a story that is shared by so many people who eventually ended up being uh, playing as, as professional. It was my mom and dad going down to the local club in Johannesburg, South Africa, um, and playing friendly tennis with, uh, with their friends. I used to go down and uh, watch them play. Uh, eventually, I got my own Dunlop Max by wooden racket, which I treasured for probably for 10 years. I used to carry that then to the courts on my own, sitting down in the vain hope that someone might actually ask me to play. In the meantime, I would be hitting balls against the wall and just just pining after the sport because I just had so much fun doing it. Now, um, I grew up also, as you know, Cliff, hitting as a very little kid with, you know, my brothers start, both my brothers started playing. And so I was, I was, as you would say, to steal one of your phrases, of which I've sto- stolen quite a few over the years, knee-high to a grasshopper, uh, when I had my first racket. So I used to also hit against the wall. But because I was so little and not strong enough, that's where I started my two-handed backhand, which was uh, my only, relatively only pretty good shot that helped me be a professional. You, of course, were famous uh, even more so because back in your day, the two-handed backhand was very unusual as a shot. So how did you learn that two-handed backhand of yours, which was your signature shot? It came totally naturally to me. Um, if, uh, if you put a golf ball in front of me, I would hit the golf ball with a left-handed swing. Uh, if you put um, a cricket bat uh, and, and a guy would bowl it to me, or baseball for that matter, uh, left-handed with the bat. And the, and the club. Mm. Um, and right-handed was writing. So I was ambidextrous. And I think that's why, why it happened. And then, uh, as modestly as I say, and as you put it, also modestly, it was your best shot. It was by far my best shot. Honestly, I feel like if I had known that it was the shot of the future, I might have been a better player because I didn't believe it because I was the only one. Mm. Uh, really, uh, at, at my level, who played with two hands, and I thought it was sort of a freak. You, know? well, you used it to beat the Rocket, the great Rod Laver, at the U.S. Open one year when you made it um, all the way to the final. And uh, what happened in that uh, championship match, Cliff, when you played in the final at Forest Hills? That was against uh, the great Manolo Santana. Mm-hmm. It was a different. It was a different year from the year that I beat Rocket. In, I think it was the under sixteen, right? And then, and then Arthur. Oh, oh, that was the year Germany. Ash beat you. That's right. I'm sorry. Okay. I yeah. had my years confused. Yeah. Sorry. That's right. It happens a lot, Patrick. So, um, <laughs> on um, the year I played the final was against Manolo Santana. Uh, and I was in awe of his genius as a player. And I, I, I mean, I followed him for years and I played against him numerous times. I finally beat him when I'm like a 35 and over match. I never did beat him in some really important matches, including a Davis Cup semifinal in Johannesburg, South Africa, people holding on, uh, the rafters just trying to get into the place. Um, he could he could slice the backhand, he could come over the backhand, and he had the best topspin lob in, in his, the history of the sport, in my opinion. So mm. 
when I played against him, I had no idea what was coming next. And it was, it was, it was horrible to have to try to figure a way to beat him, and I never did. Anyway, he is who beat me mm-hmm. uh, in the final. Um, it rained. I went into the stadium, and underneath the stadium there at the old Forest Hill Stadium, uh, there was a place where players could sort of relax in between under those circumstances, and I did, and I fell asleep. And, <laughs> in, uh, in the middle of the but, final, you fell asleep? Yeah, because it was okay. raining outside. Okay. And, 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 you know, we didn't take it as serious as they do today anyway. It's not like you were out late or something the night before, right? Well, yeah, that's a possibility. But, uh, <laughs> but in any case, I don't want to make it sound like we're in the same generation because we're not. You're a baby compared right. to me. But, but here's the, uh, the the end of that story is that somebody shakes me. And so I wake up and there's this big burly guy. And he said, there's uh, a gentleman to see you. And it was Robert Kennedy who was watching mm. the match. And he right. presented the trophies and... You know, he said, hello. Yeah, I was sort of in a daze. And I said, I can't believe it. This is Robert Kennedy. He's just woken me up. And, uh, you know, in the bowels of the stadium. <laughs> uh, anyway, I lost that in four sets. And I only know that because I, I looked it up the other day. Because I don't remember my matches. Unlike Andre Agassi. Right. I just don't. I just don't there, there are a few that I remember. Mainly from 19, like, the early 1960s was, was my first year. Mm-hmm. After that, they sort of all they all sort of come together, and I, and I don't remember them in detail. But but I did look that up, and it was a four setter, and he and he beat me again. Now, what about uh, when you when you made the move to come to the United States? I mean, obviously, you were a great junior player in South Africa. But what was it like growing up in South Africa in those days? Um, with the political situation and also with uh, just playing tennis competitively, I mean, were you able to? Did you leave the country as a junior? Well, I know, I know, you left as a in your late teens to come to the U.S. But what was it like just growing up playing competitive tennis? So the tennis was a big sport in South Africa, just sort of like Australia, U.S. You know, it was widely played by by large numbers of people. I think Johannesburg at a certain time had more tennis courts. Uh, per capita than any other city in the world. Every second house seemed to have a, a, a tennis court on it. Um, the truth is that my dad was in the business of uh, selling newspapers and, and, and books, like a book store, a, a chain of stores. Right. And he was a manager of that. And he used to bring back these Time Life magazines uh, with, uh, when they were, they were cut up because they couldn't be sold anymore. But um, I would look at ads of Chevys and Dodgers and Cadillacs and, and, and pictures of, of this is what America was. I just wanted to be in America so badly. I always did. So the first opportunity that I got after I graduated from high school, from a college in Durban was trying to find a way to get to the U.S. And, and a friend of mine, H. Siegel, got a list of soul, um, uh, was able to get me a scholarship to uh, what was then Lamar State College of Technology. Mm-hmm. Beaumont, Texas. Right. That was the first time I came uh, came to the U.S. I was happy to be here. Then I got on the South African Davis Cup team because I had won some events before I left South Africa, and that's all she wrote. Uh, I, and I, I was a, tour, a touring guy from from that year until really until now. And and um, the changes that started to take place. I mean, obviously, you were there with amateur ch- tennis throughout the '60s, and then you were a big part of. Uh, 
sort of galvanizing the players to get them to uh, become professionals and for open tennis to start in the, in the late 60s. So what was that transition like for you? And I know you were, the, you were the president of the ATP initially when it first was formed. So what was that whole, what are your memories of that process? Well, as you said, we could go on for a long time. This is a mm-hmm. very complex question, and it would take me a long time to answer it in detail. And it just the, the really short version of it is this. Lamar Hunt signed eight players, what they call the handsome eight, euphemistically at that time. I was one of them. And when you added our eight to the six or eight that were already playing professionally outside of the mainstream of tennis, it became too much for uh, Wimbledon, who then said, listen, uh, uh, we believe that we should, we should turn open, mm-hmm. which they did. So in 68, Wimbledon was, that, that was the, uh, the first year of open tennis at Wimbledon. And that, so the whole thing then, uh, the whole old amateur story collapsed, and, uh, and we players who had signed with Lamar Hunt were now professionals. And at that point, uh, when the International Tennis Federation and the Grand Grand Slam tournaments, the majors, when they were trying to get together to show some um, uh, power struggle against the players, or not necessarily against the players, but just a power struggle, we players then at that point said, wait a second, we want to have a voice in what's going on. Because the national federations from around the world were trying to take control of the players. Mm-hmm. Um, like they had in the past. Nikki Pilic was the perfect example of this. He was a Yugoslavian player. The Yugoslav Federation uh, told him that he had to play a Davis Cup uh, event. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm playing a professional tournament. I'm not going to play. So the Yugoslav Federation went to the ITF. The ITF went to Wimbledon and said, ban Nikki Pilic, which they did. And we players then said, this is not acceptable. We're out. And mm. so we walked on Wimbledon that year. And that changed the whole dynamic of the sport, Patrick. And from there on in, in a, in a sort of slow and measured way, the players took control of a lot of their destiny. And the ATP tour was formed, and it still exists to this day. Well, I know that you think that the ATP has done a, a great job over the years. And I agree with you when you see how the tour has expanded. And, you know, particularly the big Masters events, how they become bigger and better. Your buddy Butch Buckholtz and Charlie Passarell, of course, were two of the guys that were ahead of the curve in the tournament in Miami. And then the Indian Wells event where both of them ran those events, you know, from the from the get go. So when you see what's happening now in the recent past, and particularly, you know, Djokovic speaking out with some other players and talking about the players forming a different association, you've seen it all. You've seen how it's developed over the years. What's your, what's your overall take on where, uh, where the players are now and where the sport should go? Right, well, let's go back to, to the, uh, the earlier um, answer to your question, Patrick, and that is, that in the early days, it was um, the question for for all the players was, did we want to become like the PGA, where you did own a part of, of the tour, like the ATP tour does now, or do you just want to purely be a union, where you go and you negotiate with the, the majors and with all tournaments and 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 and. and uh, work it that way. That, ne- that was ne- the negotiate for your piece of the pie, basically. Yeah, right. yeah, and say, listen, we, we, you know, this is what we want, this, et cetera, et cetera. We went the PGA route, route mm-hmm. and eventually um, 
we have what we have today. I think it has been relatively successful. But there is a there's a good case for for the Djokovic thing of saying we need additional input and additional power more than what we have now. And certain of the things that they are talking about doing, like prize money distribution, I'm totally in favour of, and I because I, I, I think it's really antiquated that uh, you know the winner gets double what <laughs> what the guy who's playing right. the final gets. But again, that's another and another rather involved conversation, Patrick. But um, uh, so, uh, first, okay, there's one other thing I have to say. That is, you cannot have an ATP tour, as far as I can see, and have a players' association as part of the tour. Mm-hmm. So when he says there can be a, like some kind of combined effort or it'll be a peaceful thing, I don't see how that's going to work. I think you either have to have where you have ownership and you have a part of the decision-making process or you are a union. I don't think you can be both. So I, I never thought you could be both. Right. So, so in your opinion, it'll be one or the other. The players will stay as part of the ATP tour, which means that they sort of co-own the tour with the tournament directors and the tournaments, or the players will start their own union, as you say, and just basically go at it on their own and fight for whatever they can get. See, this has been this like 25, 30 years of, I try to say something, it takes me forever to say it, and then you summarize it in about 10 seconds. <laughs> really annoying. Well, let's get into that a little bit, because uh, obviously people know you, for the most part, for your work with ESPN. Of course, they forget that you were number four in the world, that you are in the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and that you were uh, the greatest player in the history of South African tennis. Although Kevin Anderson's making you know a little bit of a run the last uh, five years or so. I know I know you love him and the, the way he goes about his business. But let's go to your broad broadcasting career because obviously that's where you and I became mates and and, as, and I say this with all sincerity you were you were the first guy that I worked with you you mentored me in your own way we became great friends I could have consider you uh, I'm not going to say a father figure because you're you know we're, we're you know maybe a big brother like another big brother so but but tell me a little bit about bef- before you wax poetic about how amazing I am as a broadcaster. Uh, what about when you first started um, and how did you get your opportunity to get into broadcast? Because you were the first ever uh, broadcaster for ESPN calling tennis, correct? Yes, uh, yes, I was. I was on the first show, uh, the first week that ESPN was on the period of any show. It was, a, it was a tennis show. It was a Davis Cup between the U.S. and Argentina. It was in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, Patrick, again, it's a sort of a long story. I try to try to encapsulate it uh, if I can. Um, Barry Frank uh, was uh, was with IMG at a certain time, um, and he represented a lot of players in the representation business. And then he took over CBS Sports, and uh, I became friendly with him at the Superstars competition. Mm-hmm. And, and when um, because I was a participant in the Superstars competition, so we, we hang out a, a bit together. And when Tony Trabert could not do a, a, a Davis Cup tie because he was captain of the Davis Cup team, and South Africa was the opposing country in a match that was played in California, he called me and said, why don't you do this, uh, hmm. do this event? Mr. Trabert can't do it. That was my start. And one thing led to another. I did a World Team Tennis All-Star for ABC, and then... Um, this whole thing of cable came along. And I remember mm. one guy saying to me, listen, 
Cable is never going to amount to a hill of beans. You just <laughs> got to stay with ABC, CBS, and NBC. Don't worry about the cable thing. You just right. wasting your time. Anyway, I signed on. It was a uh, uh, yes. It was uh, forty some years ago now that ESPN started. I was there the first week or two on the air, and uh, and that uh, really is how it's. That was basically how it started. Lamar Hunt then. Uh, when I did a show, a series of syndicated shows for WCT, uh, said to Mike Davies, who was in charge of the uh, uh, WCT at that point, he said, listen, Drysdale's going to be okay as an, as an announcer with Vic Braden, mm-hmm. so uh, you sign him up, and, and so that's how it all happened. And then that uh, just, it went from WCT syndicated shows to right. cable television. So, so you work. So you work with the likes of you know Jim Simpson when you first got started, and you said Vic Braden. Obviously, you and Fiery, Fiery Fred were a longtime team. Mary Carrillo, and that's sort of when I came in when you and you and Fiery Fred were the, were the team. Uh, so, what were your first memories when this little whippersnapper Patrick McEnroe came along and was trying to make his way? What were you what What were you thinking at that point? Oh, here comes another one of these guys who thinks they're going to make it. You know, what a joke. His name's McEnroe. He's just getting riding his brother's coattails. I mean, what were you, th- <laughs> what were you thinking at the time, Cliff? Tell me for, no, no. for, for real. Patrick, uh, you, you cannot hide the fact that you're a nice person. I, I mean, you just can't. There's some people that, uh, that, 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 that do a good job of that. You cannot hide it. And television doesn't allow you to, uh, to hide it. Uh, you are what you are. It's not like the movies where you can take, the, you know, oh, like, take that again, take that again. Let's, let's do another take. You are what you are. You were a natural at it. I'll never forget one of our executive producers telling me that you were not only a natural in the state of uh, the sport of tennis, but you could have done any sport that you wanted and still be the outstanding talent that you are. Um, I never thought of you as a whippersnapper. I was, I was always uh, proud of the way that you, I covered you, I think, in the semifinal of the Australian, uh, Australian Open when you Right. Uh, when you got to semis there, um, I admired you as a player um, and as a broadcaster. You were just you were just simple. You were straightforward. You called it just like it. You called it exactly like I like to listen to. And I've said this to you on the side, unsolicited, um, and I and I have uh, also lauded your ability as an interviewer. And I honestly wish you would do more of it. I like that on-court stuff, and then come on up to the booth because I don't think there's anybody with the exception of Tom Rinaldi, who can compare with you in that regard. Um, but going back to the early days, I was very happy to have you, and uh, we became friends, and we still are, and always will be. You got that right, my friend. So let me ask you this, and I appreciate those words, and, and, and I do appreciate everything you've done for me because you made it easy for me and in whatever role I took on. And uh, one of the things I miss about how big ESPN just production has gotten over the years with the um, addition of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open is that you and I don't get to work together quite as much as we used to. So I miss those days. I know, I think you do too, but we, do. St- we, we still have uh, a lot of fun together. But let me ask you this, uh, in all the matches you've covered um, for ESPN, give me a couple, if any, that stand out for you calling them. What matches that you called that stand out or, or events? It's so hard to answer that question because there have been so many. I become very intimately involved with a match when I'm calling. And, and then 
when it's over, I'm sort of move on to the next, uh, move on to the next match. The one I remember more than anything is the Davis Cup tie down in Paraguay. Mm. Um, with uh, Fred was on the court and Jim Simpson was with me on, and, and I feared for Fred's life because the people were throwing coins mm. and uh, doing all sorts of stuff. It, it was Jimmy Arias. Was that Hugh, I think it was Hugh, Hugo Chapaku, wasn't it? Who was like a, yes, from Paraguay. Was. Right, <laughs> right. I don't know wow, where I pulled good. that name out of. Yeah. Somewhere that's in the confines cool. of my brain. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's, that's, that's what it was. And, uh, so I remember those matches, not in detail, but I just remember the whole atmosphere of that Davis Cup occasion. And to be honest, I think that the matches that I remember more than any other are Davis Cup because mm. they, people do go so crazy. The only little story that I can tell you that surrounds that, that uh, Paraguayan adventure is that Fred and Jim Simpson told me that this Paraguay was really a place that you needed to bring your own food because the place was so like uh, unable to cater to our what we would expect. So here I am, naively packing water and condensed milk and stuff into my bag. Goes so we go there, and it turns out this place isn't like a five star. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable hotel, great food, right? Exactly, and I was so aggravated with those two. And they lost like a train at my expense. Well, okay. one, 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 one of my memories also is Davis Cup when you and I were in, first of all, in Zimbabwe when my brother was a captain the one year he was a captain. And the other one was the one when You're we You're going to bring up Herbero Preto. Yeah, Herbero Preto in Brazil where you and I were. And that was a, the, the uh, electricity went out in the middle of the match. There were planes <laughs> that seemed like they were going to run right into our broadcast booth. We, I think we took like a six-hour bus ride from the airport, you and me in a van to get to the location. Uh, but I know I, 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 I know you got to get going, and I appreciate no, you giving no. me this nice time. memories, but I just got to tell everybody that, that at a certain time, it was so hot there, and that half of your shirt was wet and half of it was dry. So your solution to that problem was to pour water <laughs> all over your shirt. Right. Well, I made the mistake of wearing a blue shirt on a hot, you know, humid day. So I learned over the years that that wasn't the best uh, color to wear in, in hot conditions. But I will, I want to remind you, you will probably remember this, but you, maybe you won't. But um, it was a very touching moment for me. Uh, it was a year that Roger Federer won his first Wimbledon title and he beat Mark Filippoussis in the final. And you and I were calling the match, not live to air because that was the days of NBC, but we were calling it for what became, you know, an ESPN classic of this match, the classic. So we would sometimes call the Wimbledon final. I actually remember one year I called, I called the Federer Nadal, the classic match with Dickie E with Dick Enberg. Uh, right. thinking, you know, if in case it turns into a classic, ESPN can use it. But anyway, Federer beat Philippoussis, and I'll never forget as you were, uh, we were watching uh, Federer, uh, you know, celebrate and get the trophy. You had tears in your eyes, Cliff Drysdale, because I think, or you could tell me why, if you remember this, but I think it was because you knew that you were seeing someone who was going to be an all-time great, but also you, you saw what it meant to him to win that title. And that, to me, says everything about my friend, my mentor, Cliff Drysdale, how you were affected by that. That's a nice uh, trip down memory lane, Patrick. I'm, I, I am kind of an emotional guy. I, I, I do not doubt 
that that is uh, a, a very true story. I, it's off the top of my head. I do not remember it, but I would like to revisit it. And you have <laughs> given me that opportunity. Well, I'll, I will never forget it. So even though you've forgotten it and... Um, not anymore. You know, yep, yeah, yeah, it was tears of in Cliff Drysdale's eyes, and you were still you were still making the call and doing what you had to do. But uh, we went on to see Roger Federer, and hopefully we'll see him again. All right, before I let you go, I know you got a, a doctor's appointment you got to get to. Um, French Open, your thoughts? Is Nadal still the clear favorite? Um, if you offer me Nadal versus the field, I would uh, I would take the field now. Having, wow. having seen what happened to him okay. in Rome, because uh, I I just I think that uh, we've been talking about it for a decade now, and it's, it hasn't happened, and it's definitely uh, it's not uh, we cannot close the door on the the, the new group of players, but uh, there are too many of them now that I think can make it more than an impression that can actually take uh, Rafa down, even on clay. Interesting. All right, my friend. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming on. I hope I see you soon. Who knows if we'll be in Australia. Uh, hopefully, mm. we'll make that trip down under, which is one of our favorites. And yes. uh, you're my main man, Mr. Drysdale. Anytime, Mr. McEnough. I really appreciate that you've allowed me to be a part of your program. The one and only Cliff Drysdale, everyone. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.